All right. Well, I'm assuming that we're going to have a, uh, a much lighter crowd today. Uh, July 2nd, we're right up on some celebration for the 4th, and many people are doing that, that tonight. But we will we'll worship together nonetheless and pray for God's blessing to be with us. Let me start this evening with a reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'm just going to start reading in verse 3. I'll read to the, the end of the chapter. The title is uh, God's, God's Final Judgment and Glory. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Because it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You know, the hope there is that it's at, it's at the second coming of our Lord when those saints who have been troubled with affliction and persecution all throughout their lives receive comfort and rest from his hand. And uh, tonight, Nick is going to be talking to us about preach, preaching about the, uh, uh, the good hope of the second coming, the, the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So, so with that as an introduction, welcome back to our Sunday evening service. This is the third of four. Uh, this is the third of four services in this experimental run, and uh, we're going to see how today and next week go. And uh, but as we begin, why don't we uh, why don't we pray together? I'm going to read again a prayer out of Valley of Vision. So please listen and pray along with me. This is titled, The Second Coming. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, didst suffer, rise, and ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of your return. Your word... Your promises, your sacraments, show your death 
until you come again. That day is no horror to me, for your death has redeemed me, your spirit has filled me, your love animates me, and your word governs me. I have trusted in you, and you have not betrayed my trust. I've waited for you, and I have not waited in vain. You will come to raise my body from the dust and to reunite it to my soul by a wonderful, wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs the flows of the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal immortality. This natural body will put on a spiritual body. This dishonored body, a glorious body. This weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in your promises, as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing you, of disobeying your word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all of them will be judged. And after judgment will come peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for your elect. O oh God, keep me in this faith and keep me ever looking for Christ's return. Or that is indeed our prayer, that the great hope of the coming of Christ would be what we wait for with eager anticipation and joy. Lord, I pray that tonight your blessing would be upon us and that our hearts would be stirred to reach after you, to long for your coming all the more, that we would rejoice as a small gathered group of saints in the reality of Christ our King, coming in triumph and coming in glory to give comfort to his people and to deal out the justice that you have ordered for this world. Lord, we long for that day and we pray that you would bring it soon. Maranatha, Lord. And in that desire, we pray, be with us tonight and give us a foretaste of the glory that's to come by your Holy Spirit and by your word as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Yes, Lord, we do bow our heads to you. Oh, triune God, you are worthy of all praise. For from you, through you and to you are all things. Oh, we thank you for this Lord's Day evening. Thank you for this gathering of saints, Lord. Father, you see us. We are known by you, Lord. We believe you are here amongst us, even in our midst. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we consider these words from Titus, the, the epistle of Titus, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this preaching. We pray, Father, that you would help me to faithfully preach your word earnestly 
for your name's sake, Lord. I pray that you would encourage saints here this evening, Lord. I pray that their hearts would be stirred, Lord. I pray that you would help us on in our pilgrimage, Lord. And I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, who is not trusting you, Lord, that they would come to know you this evening. I pray that your name would be glorified, Father. I can do nothing apart from you. I pray for the anointing of the Spirit to preach this word. Thank you, Lord, for freedom to gather. Thank you for this building. Thank you, Lord, for all that you provided for us today. Lord, we love you and we lift up this worship and we exalt you, Lord. We lift all of this up to you, Lord. We love you. Please bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. He who does not hanker after the second coming of Christ has progressed little in the Christian faith. These words, which are so succinctly put by John Calvin, really constitute the heart of tonight's message from Titus 2.13. But before we actually get into Titus 2.13, we need to do a brief review of where we've been so far in our series. So this is the third message in our series on eschatology here this evening. The first message was on Genesis, and that was essentially dealing with the fact that in Genesis, the first three chapters, there are eschatological elements there, unmistakably. We have the image of God, described there, Adam and Eve being made in the image of God, having been given the ability not only to know God, but to worship Him, and then the image of God was given so that there would be an end goal for that, that they would be perfected in glory, that they would have eternal life, and that they would dwell with God forever. And that was through the trees, we saw that, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then the covenant of works, that God condescended so that He might bring man to a better state. And then obviously the temple, the garden temple of Eden is what we looked at as well, that God intended that his holy temple presence would fill all of the cosmos through his image bearers. So that was Genesis. And then we moved to Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we saw that from Genesis, the promised seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent had come in Christ. And he, through the parable of the wheat and the tares, laid out for us the basic scheme or framework in which the last things would take place, the last days. And that framework, if you recall, is that this world essentially has two ages, this present evil age and the age to come. This age and the age to come exhaust all time, and each age is qualitatively different than the the other one. So this age is different from the age to come. In this age, there is death and dying. In this age, there is marriage. In this age, there's a mixture of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil. And in the age to come, there is nothing but glory, light. There is no marriage, and there is life and no more death. Two different ages. And one thing I didn't clearly enunciate to you guys last Lord's Day, and I feel like I failed in that element, was there's also this aspect of the age to come having two phases. And the two phases of the age to come are Christ coming as sower, inaugurating the kingdom, and then the second phase is him coming back as harvester, consummating the kingdom. And both the age to come in this age and the two phases of the age to come are split right down the middle at Christ's second coming. That's the thing that brings in the age to come. Christ's second coming brings in the age to come and brings in the second phase which is the consummation of the kingdom. So this event, the second coming of Christ, is the thing that we as Christians should be looking forward to. It is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is the second coming. So, 
Since we left off in the last message in the Gospel of Matthew, we are now come to Paul's epistle to Titus. And many things have happened. Christ has accomplished redemption. He has been crucified, paying for the sins of his people as their covenant head, paying for the broken covenant of works which Adam and his descendants broke. Christ was then buried and ascended to the dead and then rose victorious over the grave on the third day, being the first fruits of the dead and the first fruits of the age to come. He commissioned his apostles to go into all the world preaching the gospel, preaching the good news of who he is and what he has done. And then he ascended on high to the right hand of the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And all of that is the context for our passage tonight in Titus 2. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is now fulfilling that great commission. He's going out preaching this gospel, and he's instructing Titus, who he left on the island of Crete, to establish the churches there and raise up elders. So this is what's happened in redemptive history. Christ is now in heaven at this point when Paul is writing and we're awaiting his return. He as the sower has come and he has inaugurated the age to come and now people are starting to believe the gospel and the church is advancing. So Paul, with all of this in the background, writes these words. If you will, Titus chapter 2, we're going to do verse 11 to 14 for context. The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So in this text this evening, we will be specifically looking at verse 13, this blessed hope. This, as in the Greek, it's the makarion elpida. It's the hope that makes happy. So what is this hope that makes you happy? What is this blessed hope? Well, as I've argued in my previous sermon, the second coming of Christ is the great divider of the two ages. And I will hope to convince you tonight that it is to be the thing we disciples in this age are looking forward to. So, if that be so, we should seek to understand as much as possible about this second coming, this blessed hope. And this really is the reason I love eschatology. I said this in the first sermon. I want to know more about my Lord's coming. I want to understand his coming. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be led astray about his coming. I don't want my hopes dashed, believing something that's not true when it doesn't pan out that way. I want to know what the scriptures say. I want to know the, the, the essence of what Christ's coming is going to mean and how to hope in it correctly. So I must proclaim what I believe the Spirit of God has revealed to be the right view on these matters. But at the same time, I can't even express to begin the glories of the second coming. What I'm going to attempt to do tonight is absolutely impossible. I'm going to try to preach. I'm going to try to earnestly teach on the coming of Christ in glory. And everything I'm going to attempt to do tonight is going to fall short of what that actually is going to be like. It's an impossible task, but I'm making my weak attempt for all of you. So please pray for me. So this evening, Titus 2.13, we're going to divide it into two heads. 
two major sections for Titus 2.13, and these are the two heads we're going to look at. Number one, looking for and hankering after the blessed hope, the second coming. That's heading number one. Heading number two, the basic unified scriptural details of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those are the two headings. So let us begin in heading number one, looking at the first half of Titus 2.13. Looking for and hankering after the blessed hope, the second coming. Again, I will read the words of Calvin. He who does not hanker after the second coming of Christ has made little progress in the Christian faith. Now, I wholeheartedly agree with these comments from Calvin, but these aren't something that he just kind of came up with and he kind of was clever and said that. He's getting that from the New Testament, and I hope to prove that to you here. We'll look first at 1 Peter 1.13. We're going to look at this unified witness of the apostles of Christ through the New Testament talking about this very attitude we are to have about the second coming. So 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, says Peter, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's not saying partially look forward to this. Rest your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at the coming of Christ. And then Paul adds his witness to this attitude we are to have. In Philippians 3, 20-21, Paul says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So Peter's saying, rest your hope fully on the second coming. Paul is saying, we are eagerly waiting for the second coming. And then John adds his witness in his epistle. He says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is. And pay attention, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure." So John's saying, if you have this hope, if you're resting fully on this hope and eagerly waiting for it, that hope is actually having a sanctifying, purifying effect on your life. So this is not some doctrine that's just about speculation and argument. Hoping in, resting fully in, and eagerly awaiting for the second coming of Christ actually sanctifies you. John is saying it purifies you. It's a purifying hope. And later on in Paul's life, before he was about to die... Paul the Apostle writing to Timothy, probably within months before his death, before he was beheaded in Rome, most likely at the command of Nero, Paul's writing his last epistle, and he's approaching his death. And so we're expecting, okay, what is Paul looking forward to? Paul's about to die. What is he looking forward to? And he's looking forward to the second coming. Second Timothy, he says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, 
there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not me only, but also all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is saying, I'm about to be put to death, and my hope is the crown of righteousness on that day. It's not even that I'm about to depart and be with the Lord, which he says in Philippians is far better. But here, right before he's dying, he's saying, Timothy, my hope is in that day and the crown of righteousness that's going to be given to me. And not only me, I'm hoping in that, but all who have loved his appearing. His appearing, his coming, his revelation, his Greek, the Greek word parousia, when he is revealed from heaven. This is what Paul is talking about. So our hope is not in the intermediate state of heaven. That's one of the first things I really want to bring home this evening. I think so much of evangelicalism has begun to think that our dying and going to be with the Lord is our ultimate hope. That's going to be glorious and that's a, that's a good thing, but that's not our ultimate hope. The scriptures are pointing beyond that to the second coming. It is the second coming of Christ that's our hope and the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and new earth, that's the consummated hope. So we see this from the apostles. We see John, Paul, and Peter giving this eager expectation, hope, and purifying hope in the second coming. But we also see the witness that creation itself is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Inanimate creation is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. It says in Romans 8, Paul's talking about, for I... I consider that the present suffering of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glories which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for what? The adoption, the redemption of our body. That's the resurrection. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There are these same verbs being used. We're eagerly waiting for it. All of creation is waiting for the glorious liberty of the children of God. And when does that happen? The resurrection. When the adoption of our bodies, when the adoption is finalized and our new bodies are given to us. So plants, animals, everything is looking forward to this great blessed hope that's coming. All of creation, all of the saints. But not only that, again and again throughout Scripture, we see this unified witness that everything is looking forward to this climax of history. Everything is, being, is, is, is flowing towards this, as if Christ, as an illustration, is like at the center of a whirlpool, and everything is swirling and coming to this point of Christ's coming. We see the saints in glory and revelation are also looking forward to the blessed hope. John says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Lord, thank you that we're in heaven. Everything's done. No. It said, How long, O Lord, holy and true? 
until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Saints who have been killed for their witness of Jesus Christ, who have been martyred, are now in the presence of the Lord under the altar as it's pictured, and they are still crying out to God and almost getting impatient for Him to come and administer the justice that comes at the second coming. It's a blessed thing to be in the intermediate state. It's a glorious thing to be in Christ's presence. But even those saints are saying, how long, Lord, do we have to wait until you come and execute this justice? So saints in glory are still looking for the blessed hope. Creation is looking for the blessed hope. All of God's people on earth should be looking for the blessed hope. So not only was this blessed hope the the hope of the saints under the altar in heaven, all of creation and the apostles, this was Job's hope 4,000 years ago. Job 19, verse 25. This is Job speaking. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job, living even before most of the revelation that is written for us in the Old Testament, this was an ancient hope. This is a hope that Job was holding to, that he was going to die. He said his flesh is going to be, de- be corrupted. But then from his own body, he's going to see the Lord stand on the earth at the last. How my heart yearns within me. He's looking forward to that blessed hope, the hope that makes happy. So this is a unified witness throughout the Old and New Testament, throughout saints in heaven, saints on earth, creation itself. It's all pointing to Christ's second coming. And again, as I said before, this was Paul's hope. In in another text in 2 Corinthians 5.4, he says this, For we who are in this tent, this body, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, meaning not that we just don't want to have a body anymore, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So what Paul is saying there is like, our hope is not that we would die and no longer have a body. He's like, I want to be further clothed. I want to have the resurrected body, which is promised to all of Christ's people. That's what he's looking forward to again and again. It's the blessed hope. It's judgment day. It's the new heavens, the new earth, and the resurrected bodies that come. Our hope is not in the intermediate state. I hope you're seeing that. It's a good thing. It's a restful state. It's going to be blessed, but that's not ultimately our hope. You're still, when you get there, going to be waiting for the second coming of Christ. You're going to be comforted. It's not going to be torturous. It's not going to be bad, but it's not going to be fullness yet. And may I say this too? Neither are these texts saying that the blessed hope is the Christianizing of the nations for thousands of years and the ability to live long and pass on a legacy to our grandkids in this age. That's not the hope either. The hope is the second coming of Christ and all that happens at that moment. This is the unified scriptural witness. 
It is Christ and his coming, not the intermediate state, not a golden age on this earth. It is Christ and his coming and all that happens when he comes, which we will look at in a second. Isaiah gives this testimony about what he's looking forward to and what we should look forward to. Isaiah 25. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces. A feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wine on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in this salvation. I've waited for this my whole life. I don't know about you, but this is even in Isaiah. When the day of the Lord comes and the new heavens and the new earth comes and there's going to be a feast of glory, we're going to be shouting aloud saying, this is our God, we've waited for him. This is going to be the unified cry, I believe, of all those on that day when he comes. Joy and, and just euphoric explosions of, here he is, he's come. And his coming produces what Isaiah was talking about here. This glorious feast where death is swallowed up forever. It's connected. Now maybe someone who's listening to this or, or listening to it live or being streamed may mock and say, well, this is just pie in the sky. You're looking forward to Christ's coming. That's not very practical. That's escapism. I would say, no, it's not a pie in the sky. It's an eternal feast on the earth, as we've seen in Isaiah 25. Christ is coming here to bring a new heavens and new earth. His coming produces glory here on the earth. New heavens and new earth. So it's not a pie in the sky. And for those of you who are holding to this truth, you are hoping in Christ's coming like, you, like no one would believe, and you've got people that mock you, unbelievers that say, yeah, you're, okay, Christian, you're just trying to escape this world. You're an escapist. They laugh, they mock at this coming of Christ. Where, when will his coming be? Well, my brethren, quote to them the words of Jesus and Luke. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you who are rich now, for you've received your consolation. Our hope is in Christ if people want to mock in that. If our hope is in the coming of Christ, if people want to laugh at us for that, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. Don't allow other people, don't allow unbelievers and people to mock you and feel bad about that. That's your hope. Because Christ, and I think the whole New Testament is saying, that's the right hope to have. My brothers and sisters, Think about this hope that makes happy, the blessed hope of Christ's glorious coming every day. Every day. The more new heavenly and new earthly minded you are, the more earthly good you will be, truly. The more you think about Christ's coming and the new heavens and new earth, you're going to be more effective on this earth than people that really don't think about it that much. So, with that being said, 
if this is to be our all-consuming, all-encompassing hope that makes us happy, then it follows that we should be very, very interested and very knowledgeable of the second coming of Christ, which leads to our second head. Heading number two. The basic scriptural details of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll read the section from Titus again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This coming of Christ, I hope to prove to you, will be the most audibly and visibly spectacular event in all of human history. So we're going to divide this second heading under three subheadings, A, B, and C. So subheading A, we're going to look at the visible aspect of Christ's second coming, the spectacular visible aspect of Christ's second coming. Acts 1, 9 through 11. Now, this is when Jesus is ascended into heaven. He's got his disciples there, and he's, he has just ascended. It says this, Now, when he, that is Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why did you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven, will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So this text is saying, as Jesus was brought up to heaven in a cloud, so he will come again in like manner. He's going to come on a cloud of glory. We see this again and again and again and again in the New Testament. Matthew 24, 30. Jesus says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Christ's coming is going to be unmistakable. All the tribes of the earth are going to see it. It's going to be, he's going to come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Revelation says this as well. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. So all eyes are going to see Christ coming. This is not going to be something secret. It is going to be something that is visible for the entire created world to see. It's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be full of glory and power on the clouds of heaven. Not only that, there's more visible elements to it than that. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10. Paul says this, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And when He comes in that day, there's that phrase again Paul uses again, when He comes in that day, 
to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, marveled at among all those who believe because our testimony among you has been believed. So Paul is saying not only is he going to come in glory on the clouds of heaven and great power, all the eyes are going to see him, he's going to be coming in flaming fire with mighty angels inflicting vengeance. It's going to be inescapable. You cannot miss this event. It is going to be so obvious and universal and immediate and powerful, everyone's going to see it. You're not going to miss it. The scriptures are trying to make it very clear. You are going to see this. Everyone's going to see it. Not only that, there's also one more detail about the visible aspect of his coming, which I find to be just wonderful. 2 Thessalonians 2. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So this lawless one, this final manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist, when Christ comes, he's going to eviscerate him with his bright, glorious coming. So when Christ rips the sky in his glory with all the descriptions we've just seen, one other description is he is going to obliterate this man of sin by the very Shekinah glory of his appearing. You can't miss that. That's going to be universally seen and the saints are going to rejoice and those who are not in Christ are going to flee in terror. You're not going to miss it. The visible, glorious aspect of Christ's coming. So that was sub-point A. Sub-point B, the audible element of Christ's coming. Not only is it going to be the most visibly spectacular event that any of us have ever seen or anyone will ever see, in my opinion, but it's also going to be loud. It's going to be audibly overwhelming. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. A shout of the archangel is going to accompany Christ's coming. It's going to announce his coming. So if someone is blind on that day, they're going to hear it. It's going to be unmistakable. Christ is here. A shout of the archangel. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Trumpet blasts, shouts of an archangel, it's going to be earth-shattering. There's going to be no way of missing the visible element and the audible element of Christ's coming. It's going to be announced. God's making sure everyone knows what's going on here. So subpoint C then. Okay, so we see that it's very obviously going to be visible. It's very obviously going to be audible. So then what are the immediate results of this coming of Christ? This second coming, this blessed hope that we're all looking forward to. What are the immediate results of this climax of history? Let's look again at 1 Corinthians 15. We'll reread some of this section. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So the trumpet sounds, everyone is raised. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens there? Christ visibly and audibly is, has appeared, and at that moment, the dead are raised. Death is swallowed up in victory. At that moment, death is no more. When Christ appears, it's swallowed up. It's done away with. This, this corruptible puts on incorruptible. This mortal puts on immortality. That's immediately at Christ's second coming. Matthew 24, 3. Again, we're going back to the Olivet Discourse. Now Jesus, speaking to his disciples before he's crucified, speaking to them on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So very briefly, we do not have time to go into this this evening, but I believe what's going on here is Jesus had just told the disciples, See these stones that you're all marveling at? Not one stone shall be left one upon the other. And they were shocked to hear that. And so they're asking him, tell us about these things. This, this, you're talking about this, our, the temple being destroyed. But then there's the article, or excuse me, the conjunction and. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So some expositors and some have rightly looked at this and said, he's talking about two different things here. First, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. And then he's answering their question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Okay? So we're looking at that. Louis Burkhoff says this, looking at that second section of the sentence. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They link the two together, the coming and the end of the age. The Lord does not intimate in any way that this is a mistake, but rather assumes the correctness of it in his discourse. So again, we've looked at this over and over, that Christ's coming ends the age. It is the end of the age when Christ comes. And Christ does not correct his disciples when they ask him, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he assumes that that's exactly right. When he comes, the age ends. Okay, so that's one of the immediate results. What about another one here? 2 Peter 3.10, consider this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. The day of the Lord Christ's coming is going to bring in the destruction of this world. It says here, and I love this translation, the elements will melt with fervent heat. It'll be a great noise, the destruction of the world. So when Christ comes, immediately we're going to see the, 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 the very cosmos itself begin to melt under the fervent heat and judgment of God. This is what Peter is saying, and the day of the Lord will happen. We're going to hear it. We're going to see it. The dead are going to be raised. There's going to be death being swallowed up in victory. And all of our created reality right now is going to be burned up and destroyed at Christ's coming. And finally, in Matthew 25, in the parable of Christ's coming, separating the sheep from the goats, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and I hope 
You're hearing this again and again. When he says, the Son of Man coming in his glory, as we've seen again and again, that is on the clouds of heaven, with power, in flaming fire, with his mighty angels, he's going over it again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will, and he, sorry, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. So when Christ comes, immediately judgment day commences. He immediately sits on his throne of glory and divides the sheep from the goats. That happens as he, when he comes. That's the immediate result of his coming. So we see that in his coming, there is going to be the resurrection as he comes, and he, the shout of the archangel. The elements are going to melt with fervent heat and a great noise. This world is going to be burned up and destroyed, and then judgment day is going to commence. That all is connected in the scriptures. I hope that you're seeing with Christ's coming immediately afterwards. So, this is a lot, I know. So summary, okay, where, where have we been? How, how do we put this all together in our minds here? Again, there are two ages laid out in the scriptures, as we saw the parable of the wheat and the tares, and they are divided by the second coming of Christ. In this age, during Christ's first coming, he inaugurates the kingdom. And during this phase, both the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil grow until the end of the age. Before Christ comes at the end of the age, the gospel will be preached until the end of the, uh, to the ends of the earth, and then the fullness of Jews and Gentiles will come in, believing in Christ. At the same time, the sons of the devil grow alongside with the church, and then there is a great clash at the end, where the enemies of God, led by Satan's antichrist system, attack the worldwide church of Christ. And at this time, Christ returns to bring final victory to his people to destroy Satan and his Antichrist kingdom and then resurrect the dead and issue in the final judgment and bring about the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth. It's actually a lot more simple than we make it. The scriptures make it very simple, the layout of what we're seeing here, the two ages, the dividing of the two ages, and just what happens at Christ's coming. It happens, as we've read throughout these scriptures, all of these things happen immediately after his coming. And that is what we are to be looking forward to. That's why it is a blessed hope, because when he comes, it's a wrap. He brings it to an end, and he brings justice. We don't have to wait for it anymore. He brings glory. We don't have to wait for it anymore. When he comes, that is why it makes us happy. I'll leave you with one more scripture here before we go to our next section. Luke 21. Jesus says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, from the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. This is again and again what I was just trying to show you. When Christ comes, it's going to be at the moment when he's most needed. When Christ comes, it's going to be the perfect climax of history. God's people are going to be hoping and expecting for his coming. The enemies of God are going to be coming against the church. There's going to be perplexity of nations, all these things. And what Jesus says, when you see these things, look up. Look up, 
because your redemption draws nigh, and that is our redemption is coming. And we see examples of this all through literature and cinema. We, we all love this, don't we? We love these last-minute victories of good over evil. We, we see that again and again, and there's, they're, they're in so many different genres of cinema and literature, but it's always the good seems to be completely cornered. They're about to be snuffed out, and then finally, amazing victory. It's completely reversed. The evil and the bad are completely destroyed, and the good are victorious. My brothers and sisters, as moving as it can be to watch cinema like that, to, to read literature like that, those faint things are just weak pictures and absolutely nothing, and they're vain and empty compared to when the true white rider appears, with the earth-shaking shout of the archangel of God and the ripping of the sky as he's surrounded by the armies of the kingdom, arrayed in pure white linen, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey God and do not obey the gospel of Christ. And at the same time, swooping down and harvesting the earth and gathering God's precious people who in new resurrected bodies will be bursting out of the ground and singing aloud as they ascend to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air and accompany him on his dread and glorious descent to the earth. And then we with our own eyes will watch him touch down on the Mount of Olives and cleave it into a, uh, into a great valley and so he will begin his great white throne judgment of the resurrected dead, some of whom he just slaughtered in fiery wrath. That is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That is the blessed hope that does not put us to shame. That is going to be the most glorious thing that you will ever experience. And brothers and sisters, I hope you are looking forward to that with all your might. But may I ask you, when's the last time you thought about that? When's the last time you took time to meditate on that great reality? And, you know, I'll admit, I could be wrong in some of the details. And, you know, this, you know, as I just read that, some of those details could be wrong. But I'm saying the essence of that. When's the last time you took time to really think about that? Where it just stirred your soul. You were discouraged. It's like, I'm just going to think about the coming of Christ and it just changes everything. My encouragement is, let us, let us begin to meditate on these things. Let it be a hope that makes you happy. But I also have to say this. If the eschatological system that you are holding to causes you to have your blessed hope in anything but that, it is a flawed system and has gone wrong somewhere. Because the scriptures are pointing us to that. Anything outside of that is not that glorious. That needs to be our blessed hope. If the system that you are holding to is causing you to hope and getting secretly caught up to an ethereal existence in heaven or participating in a triumph by the church leading to a golden age on this earth for you and your descendants to enjoy, then it's ultimately not causing you to put all your hope in the second coming of Christ. That needs to be your hope. That's the hope that makes happy. Nothing else does. In light of what we've just seen, how can, that's, how can your system miss that? All of creation, all the apostles, all the saints in glory on earth, we're looking forward to that. That's supposed to be the blessed hope. Nothing else. 
You cannot miss that. I, I, I really hope that you've seen that, that this is just a unified again and again scriptural witness, that that is to be the thing we are hoping in, the climax of history, when Christ is revealed in glory, and we will, again, we will marvel at him. I don't know the last time you marveled at everything, anything, but that's going to be the most marvelous thing, and our hearts will shout for joy. My brothers and sisters, see all things in life in light of this great day, in light of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by seeing the glory and the awesomeness and the majesty of this, when you really see all things in light of this and you see the, the, the grandeur of it, it will destroy all inclination for silly frivolity and wasting time on stupid, vain, worldly pursuits. When you see this glory and it captivates you, that will change the way you live. It absolutely will. As C.T. Studd said, the famous missionary, only one life, it will soon pass. Only. Only what's done for Christ will last. And in that day when he comes, as A.W. Tozer once said to Brother Ravenhill, five minutes inside eternity, we'll wish that we had sacrificed more, wept more, grieved more, loved more, prayed more, given more. We'll see all things in light of that. So brothers and sisters, before his coming, be found doing his will. Redeem the time for the days are evil. Redeem the time. Live your life in the light of the second coming every day. And you will find that you'll be more, I think, industrious for the kingdom of heaven than you ever have been. Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Don't leave this room this evening not asking yourself this. Don't leave here today not having dealt with yourself in light of all of these passages. Are you looking forward to the blessed hope? Is it your blessed hope? Do you believe? Are you rejoicing and cherishing that or do you even care? Because as Christians, that is to be the thing we're looking forward to. That is a sign of a healthy Christian walk. As Calvin said, if you're not hankering after that, you haven't grown much. Because that's, that's what the mature believer is looking forward to. Because that's what everything is looking forward to. But perhaps you're here this evening and all of this sounds very strange to you. You're, you're not looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Matter of fact, what is all of these things you're talking about? And, and for you this, this evening who may not be trusting in Christ, who yet in their sins. And I would just urge you, this may sound strange, but I don't think you should think about the second coming. I think you need to think about the first coming. You, right now, this evening, if you're not looking forward to the second coming and you don't believe yourself to be a Christian, you need to deal with yourself in light of Christ's first coming. That's your first step. Consider him, Jesus, the Son of God, born as a babe in Bethlehem, God incarnate by the Holy Spirit, coming to live the perfect life, to undo the works of Satan and the fall, to obey the law of God perfectly, to seal up prophecy and vision and do all these things, 
to heal and to do miracles and to glorify God on the earth and then to die on a Roman cross under the wrath of his father for all those who would repent and believe in him, to bleed, to be buried, to rise three days later victorious over the grave, procuring eternal life and justification for all those who would trust in him, calling all men everywhere to repent and believe in him. That is the first coming and the effects of it, and that is what you need to deal with yourself this evening. And when you truly come to Christ and you make, and he, he becomes your all in all, that you are united to him by faith alone and you are justified by that, and that you have new life in him, then the second coming will become glorious to you and you will look forward to it with all of your might because unless, you be, unless you're born again, unless you're united to Christ, Christ's second coming will be absolutely terrifying. As it says in Revelation, these just terrible images of those who are enemies of God will cry out to the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. They're going to be so terrified, they're going to ask boulders to come and crush them instead of having to deal with the the wrath of the Lamb. Let that not be you. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable hour. Come to Christ and live. He reaches out himself to you this morning. All who come to me, I will no wise cast out. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and none can snatch them out of my Father's hand, for no no one is greater than him. So Christ called to you this morning, unbelievers, to repent and believe, or this evening is to repent and believe. Repent in Christ. Repent and trust in Christ. But to those of us who are trusting in Christ, I have a few words to leave you with this evening. First word, to the backsliding Christian. How will Christ find you when he comes? As Christ said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith upon the earth? In Luke 12, he gives a parable talking about this very reality of professing Christians, backsliding Christians, who face him in his coming and are not ready. Luke 12, 36, he says, And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately, Blessed are those servants for whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and give them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Now, this is speaking, I think, primarily of pastors, but I think there's an application for all. Blessed is that servant whom his master will be found doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him 
and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with a few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to him, much is, to him who much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Let this day be the day your backsliding ends. If you're a backsliding Christian listening to this this evening, let this be the day that you begin to watch, that you do not allow yourself to be in a state where when Christ comes, you're not expecting him and you're living in a way that's extremely displeasing to him. Let this be the day your backsliding stops. Repent. Second word. To the new Christian, don't deceive yourself in thinking that this topic of Christ's second coming is a far-off, remote topic that you need not concern yourself with until later. The more you meditate on this topic and search the scriptures about it and pray about it, the more you will find yourself growing in spiritual mindedness. This is what we were seeing before. He who has a help in himself purifies himself. And speaking personally, if you'll forgive a personal reference, when I first became a Christian, this doctrine of the second coming of Christ thoroughly invigorated me and encouraged me and helped me into holiness like nothing else. It was out of weakness that I clung to this truth as I had so destroyed my life because of all the sin in my former life. I so wished for Christ to come, but the Lord had his good purposes and he restored to me that the years the locusts had taken from me and eaten. But yet even now, nine years later, I can still say by God's grace, I earnestly long for his coming and it helps me in holiness. This is not something for the mature Christian or the theologian to think about. It's something for all Christians to meditate on. It's going to help you in holiness. Finally, last word. To the wearied Christian in the room this evening. My dear brothers and sisters, take heart. Your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. You are another day's march closer home. Endure hardness as a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. Be faithful unto death, and he will give you the crown of life on that day. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we say with Job, our heart yearns within us. We pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, we wait for your coming. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would be the after-preacher this evening, Lord, and you would apply this word to all those who've heard. Lord, I pray that we would be a people marked out by our earnest longing and hoping in your coming, Lord, and I pray that you would come soon. Lord, gather the elect from the four winds of the earth, Lord. Bring in the fullness of Jews and Gentiles, Lord. Let the gospel be preached, and let all those who are ordained to eternal life come, Lord, and then come. Save your people and destroy your enemies, Lord. We wait and we yearn for that day. Give us patience like the saints in glory. Help us to be patient until you're coming. And I pray that this truth would purify us. I pray that you'd bless this congregation here at Oak Ridge, Lord. I pray that we would be those who are fully hoping in your coming.
We love you, Lord, and I, I just thank you for the grace you gave me to, to preach here this evening. Please bless the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.